Universal Genius Around 1482, the 30-year-old painter Leonardo da Vinci wrote a letter to Ludovico Sforza, nicknamed Il Moro, the Moor, who ruled the city-state of Milan. Leonardo was asking Ludovico for a job. He had spent the years before he wrote the letter working in a highly regarded artist's workshop in Florence, run by Andrea del Verrocchio. This had been a wonderful place to train, for Verrocchio was a very fine artist in his own right, who numbered among his clients the richest and most prestigious Florentine families, including the Medici. His studio turned out fine paintings, metalwork, sculpture, ceremonial armour and textiles, and had manufactured the gleaming, hammered copper ball that crowned Brunelleschi's dome, a feat of artistry and engineering which had required soldering torches made from concave mirrors that concentrated sunlight into a single hot point. While working under Verrocchio, Leonardo had already been given important opportunities to demonstrate his skills. He and his master had collaborated on handsome portraits such as Tobias and the Angel, today displayed at the National Gallery in London, and Madonna and Child, now in the Berlin Staatlicher Museen. But as he turned 30, Leonardo was setting his sights higher. He did not simply desire the chance to be an artist in his own right, or to have his own workshop in Florence. He wanted to be something altogether bigger. In his letter to Ludovico Sforza, he explained what he could do. I have designed extremely light and strong bridges, adapted to be easily carried, wrote Leonardo. I know how, during a siege, to take the water out of the trenches. I have methods for destroying any fortress, even if it is founded on solid rock. I have cannons that can fling small stones, almost resembling a hailstorm. He boasted that he could make naval weapons, design mines and tunnels, and make unassailable armed chariots that can penetrate the ranks of the enemy with their artillery. He said he could manufacture guns, catapults, and other effective machines not in common use. Besides military engineering, he claimed to be a master of architecture and the composition of buildings, public and private, and in guiding water from one place to another. He wrote that he would be able to see to completion a famous mooted Milanese public art project to construct a giant bronze horse in tribute to Ludovico's late father, Duke Francesco Sforza and he mentioned, almost as an afterthought. Likewise in painting, I can do everything possible, as well as any other man, whosoever he may be. This letter of Leonardo's, preserved in draft form in his notebooks, shows in cross-section the versatile mind of a medieval man who has a serious claim to be thought of as the greatest genius in history. Leonardo set no limits on his interests, and there was very little he could not do. Besides painting several of the most famous artworks of all time, Mona Lisa, The Last Supper, The Virgin of the Rocks, and Salvatore Mundi, and drawing the iconic Vitruvian Man, he mastered aspects of anatomy, optics, astronomy, physics, and engineering. The inventions he designed in his notebooks, among them aircraft and tanks, were often so ambitious that they were not realised until hundreds of years after his death. His notes to himself, 
largely kept in neat left-handed mirror writing, ranged across a vast landscape of intellectual and practical topics. Leonardo was a polymath and a fearless thinker. And he knew it. That was why he wrote to Ludovico Sforza. He reckoned his abilities, born of an insatiably curious mind and buoyed by great self-confidence, would be invaluable to a political patron, warrior and aesthete such as Il Moro. He was right. After writing the letter, Leonardo spent 17 years working in Milan. And this was only part of a long career, during which Leonardo served many great masters in Italy and France. All were lucky to have him, for he was, as Vasari put it, marvellous and celestial. Leonardo was born in the small town of Vinci, about a day's ride from Florence, in 1452. His father was a notary, his mother was a 16-year-old peasant girl. They were not married, but at that moment, illegitimacy was no particular disgrace. It simply meant Leonardo was brought up by his grandparents and not given a rigorous Latin education. At the age of 12, he moved from Vinci to Florence with his father, and two years later, he was apprenticed to Verrocchio, whose circle may also have included the brilliant painter Sandro Botticelli. Under Verrocchio, students did not just learn to paint and sculpt. They picked up practical geometry and anatomy and studied classical literature, the better to understand the subject matter of the artworks they produced. Leonardo lapped it all up. By the time he was an adult, in the early 1470s, Florence was an even greater place to be an artist than it had been 40 years previously, in the days of Cosimo de' Medici and Francesco Filelfo. The effective ruler of the city was now Lorenzo the Magnificent de' Medici, who took over the family business in 1469. Although the Medici Bank's finances were creaking, they suffered catastrophic losses through their Bruges branch in the 1470s, when a rogue local manager made massive, unsecured loans to Charles the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, the son and successor of Philip the Good. Lorenzo's eagerness to spend his money lavishly made his tenure a golden age of the Renaissance. A quick census of the artists working and emerging in Florence in the 1470s and 1480s is a roll call of some of the most brilliant in world history. As well as Verrocchio, Botticelli and Leonardo, the city was home to Domenico Ghirlandaio and the Poliulo brothers. The poet and Greek scholar Angelo Ambrogini, known as Poliziano, was combining his duties as tutor to Lorenzo de' Medici's children with translating Homer's Iliad into Latin verse. In 1484, the scholar Giovanni Pico della Mirandola a man of almost supernatural genius, said Machiavelli, would arrive to seek Lorenzo's patronage, boasting that he could defend 900 theses on topics ranging from Christian dogma to witchcraft against any and all who dared challenge him. A few years later, a 13-year-old Michelangelo Buonarroti was apprenticed to the Ghirlandaio workshop. He would grow up to be Leonardo's closest rival as the finest painter of the Italian Renaissance. The wealth of the Medici family drove much of this creative investment. Every year, Lorenzo continued the family tradition, 
established by his grandfather, of ploughing what would today be tens and even hundreds of millions of dollars into cultural endeavours. He did it because he, and almost everyone else whose opinion mattered, thought it money well spent. For one thing, conspicuous consumption was satisfying in itself, as it remains to billionaires today. For another, Lorenzo was concerned with cultivating his own reputation as a patron of the arts, not least to cover up some of his shadier dealings within the city. And patronage could be useful in diplomacy too. On occasion, Florentine artists were loaned out to other great potentates to cultivate their favour. When he was trying to secure a cardinal's hat for one of his sons, Lorenzo sent the painter Filippino Lippo to Rome to decorate another cardinal's private chapel. It may well be that he encouraged Leonardo to seek favour with the Sforza family in Milan too. Yet his patronage was not wholly cynical. Accumulating great art, particularly great art displayed in public settings, was thought to reflect of the inner virtue of the Republic of Florence itself. Machiavelli claimed that Lorenzo spent vast sums on beautiful things in order to keep the city abundantly supplied, the people united, and the nobility honoured. To be sure, Lorenzo had personal reasons for doing so, but among them was real civic pride, which, in the 15th century, was inseparable from the business of leadership. However, while Lorenzo's Florence, the city that produced Leonardo da Vinci, was abundant in beautiful things, it was also violent and dangerous, perhaps even more so than it had been in Cosimo's day. Factional strife in the city could still boil over quickly into spectacular bloodshed, as it did in 1478 in the Patsy Conspiracy, when assassins of the Patsy family, backed by Pope Sixtus IV, tried to assassinate Lorenzo and his brother Giuliano in Santa Maria del Fiore Cathedral. Public feuding was deeply ingrained in Florentine political culture, and it made its mark on Leonardo. In his notebooks there's a memorable ink sketch of one of the Patsy conspirators, Bernardo Bandini dei Barancelli, hanging dead from a noose. The sketch is accompanied with Leonardo's cheerful notes on the colours of Baroncelli's robes. To live and work in the vibrant, handsomely funded world of the Renaissance meant accepting its macabre realities and the ubiquity of bloodshed, crime and war. So it was no coincidence that Leonardo positioned himself to Ludovico Sforza as a man who could do more than merely paint like an angel. He knew that to be truly great required a measure of pragmatism, being able to turn one's ingenuity to all manner of ends, including, if necessary, diabolical ones. Leonardo's 17 years in Milan were busy and productive. Handsome and charming, a man of outstanding beauty and infinite grace, wrote Vasari. He was also gentle-spirited. He adored animals and would never eat meat. Both inscrutable and gregarious, he made friends easily. Though his closest associate was his young assistant, Gian Giacomo Caprotti da Oreno, better known simply as Salai, who was apprenticed to him at the age of 10 in 1490. Beautiful, unruly 
and possessed of a kleptomaniac streak, Salai combined the roles of Leonardo's muse, helper, protégé, son, and very possibly lover, staying with him for a quarter of a century. His formative teenage years were spent by Leonardo's side in Milan. During his time in that city, Leonardo won big commissions, although these were mostly in the civic space rather than in the realm of military engineering. He consulted on improvement works to Milan's huge and structurally unsound Gothic cathedral. He spent many hours designing theatrical devices for the amusement of Ludovico's courtiers. He painted the two versions of the Virgin on the Rocks, which today hang in the Paris Louvre and in London's National Gallery. He undertook the gorgeous, intimate, secular portraits, known today as Portrait of a Musician, Lady with an Ermine, and La Belle Ferronniere. And he devoted more than two years to the Last Supper, a mural in the refectory of the convent church of Santa Maria della Grazia, where curious citizens came to see him sitting all day on his scaffolding, lost to his painting. Meanwhile, in private, he studied anatomy, both animal and human. His Vitruvian Man, a scientific drawing illustrating the geometric proportions of the human form, also dates to this period in his life. All the while, he continued to fill his notebooks with designs for machines, observations on mathematics, studies of natural motion, and more besides. It was a wonderfully fruitful period, but it would not last forever. Of all the bold pitches Leonardo had made to Ludovico Sforza in his letter of 1482, the one he came closest to achieving was production of a great bronze horse, the long-talked-about monument to Ludovico's father, Duke Francesco Sforza. In the early months of 1489, he finally got the job and set up a studio staffed with half a dozen assistants where he made plans for the biggest equestrian statue the world had ever known which would stand at three times life-size, weigh 75 tonnes, and advertise the might of the Sforza dynasty, who had been in power in Milan only since 1401, and coveted spectacular ways of making up for their lack of pedigree. Leonardo's plans for this gigantic monument were more than audacious, they were visionary. He aimed to cast it in a single piece, a process no one else alive would have conceived or dared to try. By the end of 1493, he had worked through the structural problems of moulding, casting and cooling, and was almost ready to begin. Yet the great horse never materialised, for just at that moment, French armies were preparing to invade northern Italy. A fierce 65-year series of wars for control of the Italian peninsula, waged mainly between France and a newly united Kingdom of Spain, was beginning the Italian city-states would henceforth be in regular military peril, and Ludovico Sforza could not now afford to waste good metal on big horses. He sent the bronze earmarked for Leonardo's statue 250 kilometres east to the city of Ferrara, where it was used to manufacture cannon. And that was that. It was a disappointment, although Leonardo was pragmatic enough to know that nothing could be done. I know the times, he wrote. The map of Europe was changing abruptly and dramatically. Artists and artisans had to respond as best they could. Leonardo would never have the luxury of another 17-year residency at any court. He would, however, 
have an even greater pick of patrons than before, as War drove up the premium on his artistic and engineering expertise. In 1499, another French army marched over the Alps to invade northern Italy, deposing Ludovico Sforza, who eventually died in a French dungeon in 1508. Leonardo fled. He headed back to Florence, stopping briefly in Mantua to meet and sketch that city's young and single-minded patron of the arts, Isabella d'Este, and in Venice to advise on defensive engineering to guard against possible invasion by the Ottomans. But by 1500 he was home and working on a new raft of projects. For a brief spell, he was hired by Cesare Borgia, a dangerous, sadistically violent, wanton and extremely cunning military captain and would-be prince, whose father was the debauched and sexually incontinent Pope Alexander VI. Cesare spent the early years of the 16th century conquering the smaller cities in the vicinity of Florence and only resisted taking Florence itself upon receipt of protection money. He hired Leonardo as a military advisor and mapmaker, and Leonardo stayed in his service for the better part of a year, even as Borgia besieged, butchered, and murdered his way around Italy. There was a cold, pragmatic streak to Leonardo's genius, which sat strangely at odds with his gentler, humanistic interests. A patron, it seemed, was a patron. Serving Borgia allowed Leonardo to develop his skills in cartography bridge-building and fortification design, that was apparently enough for him to overlook any amount of moral squalor. Perhaps, however, one could only put up with Cesare Borgia for so long. In 1503, Leonardo left his service. He spent the next decade shuttling back and forth between Tuscany and Lombardy, Medici Florence and French-occupied Milan adapting to the rapid political changes and reversals of fortune that now characterised the wider region. The turbulence and constant upheaval might have shaken a less robust or worldly-wise character. Yet Leonardo seems to have danced constantly forward, the quality of his work remaining in the highest rank despite the difficulties of the times. It was probably in Florence between 1503 and 1506 that he began a portrait of Lisa Gerardini del Giocondo, the Mona Lisa, which he would tinker with for the rest of his life. He also worked on a mural, now lost, for the Palazzo Vecchio, which showed a tangle of men and horses in combat at the Battle of Anghiari, a clash between Milanese and Florentine-led forces that had taken place in 1440. He and his assistants produced numerous editions of a painting called Madonna of the Yarnwinder. In Milan, in 1509, he started work on the extraordinary, gender-fluid St. John the Baptist. And he worked on unrealised, grandiose military and civil engineering projects. He planned to divert the river Arno to cause a drought in Pisa, which had rejected Florentine overlordship. He plotted to drain the swamps surrounding the town of Piombino, and build an impregnable fortress on the reclaimed land. These came to nothing, but Leonardo never stopped dreaming. Yet as he dreamed, he aged, and as the 16th century dawned, Leonardo found himself an old man. A self-portrait he sketched when he turned 60 in 1512 shows a grizzled, long-nosed, balding figure with a flowing beard 
and shoulders that are starting to stoop. But he was a grand master in one of the grandest times. His peers included the spiky, combative, sexually closeted, and often downright angry genius Michelangelo, who unveiled his statue David in Florence in 1504. Yet even Michelangelo had to seek the permission of Leonardo and other Florentine elders to have it approved for display outside the Palazzo Vecchio. So his star had not yet waned. And as a result, his patrons now included the most powerful figures in his world. In 1513, one of Lorenzo de' Medici's sons, Giovanni, was elected as Pope Leo X. He decided he could use Leonardo in the papal court, where lavish renovations were underway. In September of that year, Leonardo left Florence for Rome and began the last stage of his life. Leonardo's time under the patronage of a Medici pope was not as glorious as perhaps he had hoped. For one thing, he was not part of the most exciting projects at play in the Holy City. Michelangelo had been given the job of decorating the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which he completed in 1512. Raphael, Raffaello Sanzio, was painting the papal apartments. These were much younger men, but the plum job of building the new St. Peter's Basilica, which was arguably the greatest architectural commission on earth, had gone in 1506 to Leonardo's contemporary, Donato Bramante. So although he had fine apartments in the papal palace at the Vatican, he was left more or less to his own devices, studying geometry and reflection, taming a lizard for which he made a coat from mercury-covered scales dissecting human bodies and making notes on anatomy. This was all fascinating work, and he was paid a nice salary to do nothing very much. But it was not enough. In 1516, therefore, Leonardo left Rome and headed out of Italy for the first time in his long life to serve yet another patron, Francis I, the young and charismatic new king of France. More than 40 years younger than Leonardo, Francis was a true child of the Renaissance. Like his contemporary and sparring partner, Henry VIII of England, Francis was commandingly tall, handsome, and possessed of an instinctive love for fine things and the rich fruits of humanism. He came to the throne aged 20 on the first day of 1515 and met Leonardo with the Pope at the end of the same year. Tempting Leonardo to France, where he lodged him in the picturesque village of Amboise, was a priceless opportunity to send the world a message about the values of his new French monarchy. It was also a chance for Francis personally to study with the greatest living polymath. For the next three years, Leonardo and Francis enjoyed a mutually pleasant existence in one another's company. Just as he had done in his long years in Milan, Leonardo designed court entertainments. He tinkered with his great paintings, including the Mona Lisa. He worked on designs for a brand new Renaissance palace and town at Romorantin. He studied mathematics and the movement of water, and he grew gradually, gracefully ancient. After a series of strokes, he died on the 2nd of May, 1519. A tradition, begun by Vasari, said that he died with Francis at his bedside, indeed that he expired in the arms of the king. 
To Vasari, this was a fitting, noble end for so great a man. Leonardo adorned and honoured in every action, no matter what mean and bare dwelling, Vasari wrote. Florence received a very great gift in the birth of Leonardo and an incalculable loss in his death. And it was not just Florence. Every patron who had employed Leonardo, from the murderous Cesare Borgia to the urbane Francis I, had been blessed by his genius. The world was greatly diminished by his passing. A Golden Age Leonardo da Vinci was the ultimate Renaissance man, so much so that it is often hard for us to conceive of him as the product of the Middle Ages. Yet he was born in the same year as King Richard III of England. He died several decades before the Polish scientist Nicolaus Copernicus proposed that the sun and not the earth might sit at the centre of the heavens. Many of Leonardo's projects, from helicopters to diving bells, were so advanced that they belonged not to his time, but to ours. He is an essentially liminal character, one who belongs to both our worlds, and who has the power to join us emotionally as well as intellectually to the Middle Ages. In his own time, however, Leonardo was very much primus inter pares. Had he never lived, had he been a legitimate child of his father's, sent off to a conventional education and a solid career as a notary, we would still be able to talk of the Renaissance as a landmark, transitional age in Western and world history from which poured forth a torrent of new ideas, methods and styles across literature, arts and human sciences. Leonardo's peers, from Botticelli and Donatello to Michelangelo and Raphael, would have made sure of that. And of course, it was not only Italians. For although the main wellspring of the Renaissance was in Italy, by the 16th century, the Cultural Revolution had begun to touch almost every realm in the West. In England, the humanist writer Thomas More was at work around Henry VIII's court, publishing books including Utopia, his satirical work of social commentary and political philosophy. In France, Leonardo's place as the most talented painter at Francis I's court was taken by Jean Clouet, and later his son François Clouet, whose paintings of French courtly figures such as Francis and his daughter-in-law Catherine de Medici became as iconic as the English court paintings made in the 1530s by Hans Holbein the Younger. In Poland, the poet Mikolaj Ray began to write in the Polish language, and Stanislav Samostrelnik experimented with new styles of manuscript illumination and fresco, following trends brought east by foreigners such as the Italian Bartolomeo Berecci and the German painter and stained glassmaker Hans von Kulmbach. These creative people, and many others like them, continued to flourish throughout the 16th century and into the early 17th. And what remained constant throughout that long period was the close interdependence of patrons and artists, neither of whom could do without one another. Indeed, one of the reasons that the magnificent creativity of the Renaissance lasted so very long after its genesis in the 14th century is that the most powerful men and women in Europe were growing ever richer and gaining access to new sources of gold and precious goods far beyond the imagination of any generation before them. As a rule, 
they were always happy to spend their newfound riches on pretty things. Where, though, did all this wealth come from? The answer lay in the West. In the year that Leonardo died, the German printmaker and artist Albrecht Dürer was bringing many of the techniques and insights of Renaissance drawing and painting to Nuremberg. Dürer was an avid traveller with an insatiable curiosity and a range and intellect not dissimilar to Leonardo's. He learned much about painting, engraving, anatomy and geometry on his travels to Italy and the Netherlands. He corresponded with other learned and talented figures all over Europe, and like Petrarch long before him, he thought hard about the elusive topic of beauty itself. He was as happy making portraits of magnificent monarchs like the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I as he was creating pictures of exotic beasts from much further afield. Dürer's woodcut of a rhinoceros, today in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., is truly sublime. He took his inspiration from far and wide, and he was usually able to analyse and understand everything he set his eyes on. Yet when Dürer took a trip with his wife to the Burgundian Low Countries in the late summer of 1520, he saw things he could not easily explain nor absorb into his work. Travelling through Brussels, the couple visited the town hall, where they clapped eyes on a display of gold and silver treasures whose beauty almost defied explanation. These belonged to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, whom Dürer was in the Low Countries to petition for patronage. Dürer noted in his diary the things he had seen. A sun all of gold, a whole fathom broad, and a moon all of silver the same size. Also two rooms full of armour, and all manner of wondrous weapons. Very strange clothing, bed covers, and all kinds of wonderful objects of human use, much better worth seeing than prodigies. These things were all so precious that they are valued at 100,000 florins. All the days of my life I have seen nothing that rejoiced my heart so much as these things, and I marvelled at the subtle ingenuity of men of foreign lands. Dürer's rough estimate that the treasure was worth 100,000 florins was in itself almost incredible. His own annual stipend from Charles's predecessor as Holy Roman Emperor was 300 florins, a handsome sum. But his appreciation of the exotic craftsmanship on display was even more important. For in Brussels that year, Dürer was looking at works by artists who had been entirely untouched by the Renaissance. The treasure on display had been brought to Europe from Mexico by Hernán Cortés, an adventurer and conquistador, who had sailed across the Atlantic and visited the megacity of Tenochtitlan, modern Mexico City. The hoard was a gift from the Aztec ruler Moctezuma II, and it was a mere suggestion of the vast riches that lay in the new lands Cortés and other Europeans had begun to explore in the Americas. So this was the wealth that would fund the next stage of the Renaissance, and much else besides. As the 16th century dawned, the world was getting bigger, richer and bloodier. The map of the globe was expanding, and all the rules were changing. <laughs>